and welcome to How to Win the Lottery Season 2, Episode 1. Bob, you feel the it's a new season? Yeah, I, I do feel that it's a new season. And it's almost as depressing, but also funny. No, I don't, it's not as depressing. We, we started out depressed, um, largely because chronologically this is the first book. So it's like we go back to the beginning. The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, famously dead author. Yeah. I have that in my notes because I, I have a column on our sheet that we keep track of the... the the books that we're doing and when we're doing and how many pages and where I can read and whatever. And there's a column that says Twitter and like if they're on Twitter. And uh, I wrote down, no, famously dead. Yeah, she is famously dead. The year that she published this book. The year she published this book. And it's a book that is about, uh, among other things, suicide. Yeah. So what is The Bell Jar about? This is kicking off our campus season in a way that's not really about campus, kind of. Yeah, this is a book that's not like it doesn't necessarily. It's probably the if it's the least out of all of the books. Um, well, so, so just like Never Let Me Go kind of transition from depression into school this is kind of transitioning from depression into school as well yeah yeah sure um what so what's it about joey i asked you i know but i'm i'm flipping the script wow that was expertly done (laughs) there's a young woman named esther greenwood and she is uh a young kind of go-getter a young beautiful woman who is in new york writing for like a summer internship basically at a magazine beauty kind of magazine or something she'd like to be a poet much like sylvia plath yeah this is probably a stand-in for her in, in different ways. Gotta ways, imagine it right? is. And it's just about her in the 60s, I would imagine, maybe 50s. 50s, I think. Kind of being a woman before her time, seemingly wanting the world and the world being like, you can't have that, you're a woman, sort of. Yeah, which is like, I, I think part part of what this book is doing is it's saying like, this woman, all women were not of their time back then, right? Like you had, right. you, you have... Um, multiple women in this book who are dealing with this kind of depression one way or another her being depressed is not a necessarily a symptom of her it's a symptom of the world around society her being yeah. like totally fucked up and then be like oh you have issues let's electroshock you into normality yeah um it's interesting because the this book and cuckoo's nest and a couple of other things have like people in the medical community are still pissed off about these books because they stigmatized electroconvulsive therapy, which is something that still goes on right now and is like significantly different, I think, from how it was back then. But like they right now, like people, doctors will be like, it's totally safe. You don't like but but like people think of it as being like abusive. Well, what's what's crazy is that so there's two things very, very, very early on like this, like think maybe the first line of the book. She refers to the summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs. Like, electricity yeah, sure. is very much in the forefront of this book. Uh-huh. It was a queer, sultry summer, the summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs, and I didn't know what I was doing in New York. It's like, oh, I'm in. But then on page three, she says, later, when I was all right again. And I'm like, oh. Yeah. That means she wasn't all right, and then she gets all right. But it feels like, you know, and I think I think the hard thing is that it, this being, you know, 60 years later or whatever, and reading about it and, like, kind of knowing, like, you know, Medicine wasn't, like, terrible back then, but, like, we've come a long way, and her getting electroshocked, like, she thinks that she's better off. I don't I don't know if she's better off. Well, it's it's interesting, because in the book, she, um, let's skip ahead to the end, she's the one that makes it out okay, right? And, 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 you, and you know from that introduction that she ends up being okay, she says, when I'm all right again. Yeah, but, like, okay, not necessarily by her standards, by maybe society standards? Sure. Because it seems yeah. like she has... So the book portrays her as, like, 
depressive because I think she is ambitious in a way that society will not allow her to be. Mm-hmm. Like she wants to have like she wants to live in the city and the country and not necessarily be married and be able to do this and do that and whatever. And society's like no. And I relate. I mean, who doesn't relate to that? Right? Sure. You, you you want the culture of the city, but you want in 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 a, a look behind the scenes. Joey and I drove back to suburban New Jersey from the Bronx today, and it was fucking hell. It was bad. It, it was just like. We were outside Yankee Stadium for 35 minutes. Everyone just trying to merge together all at the exact same time. Just this, like, concrete and sun and metal and, like, no plants and people selling mangoes out of Ziploc bags. And, like, it's like, yeah, that's where the museums are. But, like, get me the fuck out of here. Yeah. But, like, when, when you're in the suburbs or the country, it's like okay, like, this is beautiful, and I can relax, and things move more slowly. But there's nothing to do here. But where is the culture? Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, they they pin her as being neurotic because of that, like, because she can't decide between two things. But it's like, I mean, call me neurotic, too, then, I guess. Well, I think they pin her as neurotic because she won't accept the life that the world is like you as a young woman should be, like, over the moon that this guy Buddy wants to marry you. Yeah, and, and, like, you should just accept – there's a really funny, like, three-page – three or four-page segment where she's, like – once she gets rejected from the school, like, she's just like, well, I'll start writing a novel. And she starts writing the novel, and then she's like – Oh, I had to live life first. Yeah, I've got to live life first, so I'm going to take a typing class and then uh, – or a shorthand class. And then she's like, no, I'm not going to take the shorthand class because I don't give a fuck about shorthand. Yeah. I don't want to do anything that shorthand, like, I would, would right. ever be good for. Um, so instead I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this. And, like, one by one she just, like, gives herself reasons to not do various things because it would interfere with her life in some way. And it's important that you bring up this funny because it's also, like, most of this book she's suicidal and trying to kill herself. But, like – in a way that's fun and whimsical, kind of, because, like, she's unable to do it. Yeah, there's, like, a kind of Wes Anderson vibe almost to it. Well, I was saying, like, it's a movie that I haven't seen in, in 10 or 12 years, but it reminded me of Harold and Maude, where she's like, doesn't Maude keep finding him trying to kill himself? And she's just like, oh, Harold, what are you doing? Uh, Harold's mom keeps finding it. Harold's mom keeps finding it. Yeah, okay. and he's, like, you know, trying to scare her. But she's like, oh, you know, I was going to hang myself, but, like, I couldn't tie the knot right. I couldn't find a good banister. I was going to cut myself, but... I felt bad. My wrists are too delicate. Like, I, I didn't want to do that to yeah, my wrists. And, and, and then my mom was going to be home, and I didn't want to do that. And, and she has this this ambition to, uh, in the trip from one uh, psychiatric institution to another, right? They're going over a bridge, and she's like, okay, I'm going to open this door and jump out and jump off the bridge. And then uh, she's foiled, but then in her head she's like, I wouldn't have done that anyway. No. Like, you get the sense that she doesn't, she doesn't really want to kill herself. Yeah, I think she's glamorizing that. I mean, this is a very, again, trigger warning, content warning, a lot about suicide in this book, which, I mean, we, I guess maybe we should have said earlier, whatever. But I think that scene it's is... The, it's the, Honestly, it's the fucking bell jar. Like, you sh- probably should know. A... But I had no idea what this is about. Oh, no? No. Okay, well, And I think bad. that scene that you mentioned is the first time that the titular bell jar is referenced. Because mm-hmm. I think that's maybe the first time that she's actually feeling the world closing in on her. Yeah. So it's a killer metaphor. The bell, the bell jar as as a metaphor for depression is is a very strong one. Ever since we did the How to Judge a Book by Its Cover with Matt for Open City, I'm like, what does the title actually mean? Yeah. And last time it was very obvious because it's just the song and, you know, there. And this is also more obvious, but I'm just like, we should maybe pay attention to the title of the book that we're talking about. Yeah. So a bell jar is, um, you could picture a bell jar in your head. It's, it's essentially a jar that's shaped like a bell. Yep. In the book, she 
describes depression as like a bell jar closing down around her where she doesn't really have access to anything outside of that bell jar and she's being poisoned by her own air and her own smells and she's like completely stifled she can't she feels right. completely trapped yep when she, after she's gone through the electroconvulsive therapy she um describes it as the bell jar hanging above her which is still pretty scary because it implies that it's like a guillotine. Yeah, it could descend at any moment to trap her once again in her own stenches. It's presented not like that. It's presented as a positive because now she has fresh air and she can see the world around and she can move. I love this book. This, I oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we're we're going to later this season. We're going to cover what still you know. If I had to pick a book right now, would be my favorite book. It's probably End Zone, which I've only read once, but. That's up there, but like I would find, I would be surprised. I hope, I hope, because I mean, to not hope would be disappointing. <laughs> I hope that we find a book this season that I like more. But like, I would not be surprised if this was my favorite book this season that I hadn't read before. What appealed to you so much, so much about it? So I don't know why I feel this way, and this is a broad thing, not about this book. But there's something that I really relate to, or find refreshing, or enjoyable in narratives about semi-neurotic, like twenty-year-old women in New York. <laughs> Sure. Which is a very hyper-specific thing. Yeah, it is. But there's been a couple books that you have, like Treasure Island. Sure, yeah. Like... Sarah Levin. Sarah Levin. Levine? Levin. Uh, I think there's an E. It might be Levine, yeah. Not like Adam Levin. Levin. Fuck. I knew <laughs> I knew I got it wrong in the past, and I couldn't remember how I got it wrong. I'm so sorry. That's right. I got Sarah Levine's name wrong this time. Or Story of My Life. Yeah, the Jay McInerney book. Because this book, for being 60-ish years old, feels like it could have been, with a few, like 90% of this, feels like it could have been written last year or this year. If you took out references to Negroes and- And Technicolor television. And Chinamen. (laughs) Yes. And the casual racism strewn strewn throughout this novel. Then you would be, uh, you could, could, yeah, it could could be a real, like, modern book. Because it's about people. And and sadly, stuff hasn't changed all sure. that much. There's not, you know, like like I guess like women certainly have more access to. I mean, sixty percent of people in the in in college are women now, but like there is still that thing about like the 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 family versus work dichotomy and yeah. th- and things like that, and and you know parents being like, so when are you going to get married, uh, etc. I, again, I don't know why I relate to it so much. I think I think part of it has to do with the fact, like it's in movies too. And books, but I think that there have just been so many. I've seen so many movies and I've read so many books written or made, just made by straight white dudes about straight white dudes. Mm-hmm. That whenever there's something that even isn't like you know, in our last Patreon episode, subscribe at Lottery Pod. No, not LotteryPod.com. We don't have, we don't own that. Patreon.com/slash Lottery Pod. You talked about um, the transition baby, and like it's not like I need something that is like so radically out of my comfort zone like that. Uh-huh. But just the fact that it's like about a woman, like a different point of view, which is not like, you know, whatever. It just feels different because it's a different mentality and especially a woman, a female author. And, you know, it's just, it's all... For sure, yeah. It just feels different, even though it's not like the most underserved demographic. The fact that it's not just like a straight white dude writing about straight white dudes. Like, I'm not against that, but this just, it, I like that there's it's something, it, it's different. Yeah, it's creating a drama that you're like partially unfamiliar with. It gives you access to another sure. world and allows you to see through another set of eyes and maybe makes you a more empathetic person, uh, maybe changes the way that you look at the world a little bit. Yeah, but I loved it. I mean, I just think, it, I think it's very funny. I think it's, the writing style is like a little flowery, but in a way that I liked. Yeah, I didn't I didn't find it too, too flowery. It found, like, I, I often talk about this book in 
conjunction or parallel with Catcher in the Rye. Like, I think that they're like kind of brother and sister novels. Can you go into, because you said that to me when I was reading it, and I haven't read that since high school. Yeah. So I don't really remember it. We're not doing it this season. We could. We In theory, it would fit, right? Or no? Uh, yeah, but I it's it's a it's a book that has been... Um, You're just afraid of being exposed as a phony. No, I just it's it, yeah. like th- that's a book that's been covered. Sure, right. If we were if we were doing a like let's say we started a podcast that was called like obvious s- books one hundred and one. No, or or just like like a, a sophomore lit or something like that. Like, like what like if if we just covered. I mean, that's a good idea for a podcast. Like just the the, the classic books that you read in high school, and then you like de- dissect them from a from a. Anyway, anyone that wants to do that, go ahead and do it. It's probably actually already a podcast out there. Uh, but like that's basically Cliff Notes for this year, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. You could you could do it. But like I'm not that interested in talking about the Great Gatsby or something like that. I've had those conversations sure. and like like I'm more interested in people reading books that they maybe haven't read. Um, which shamefully, I think the Bell Jar is one of them. It's one of those books that, like, I think people recognize as a classic, but it's not in curriculum, and it's not really. Is like, it because of content, or what do you what do you think? I'm not sure. Um, I'm not real. I'm not really sure. I know that. Yeah, it's hard teaching a suicide novel in in high school. But Joey's left the room, and now it's like I'm, I'm. He's like doing something in the fridge, and it's like I'm. I'm talking to a room by myself. I have to pretend like he's still here, and I'm talking to him. I was gonna signal to you, like, just keep going, but then yeah, like, you were gonna so, call that out. I was try- I was- it's so hard for me to keep going. Like I'm, like I'm just talking, and it, but I'm not talking to anybody because you're in another room from me. But I can hear you. I, okay. It's weird. So you think you think people don't teach it because it's suicide? I, maybe I don't know. Do I mean, th- okay, I sorry. wouldn't have a problem teaching this book. I think it would be fine. Well, yeah, you're a rock and roller. That's true. That's I, am, I am. I am a rock and roller. <laughs> the Guy Ritchie movie Rock and Rolla is about you. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, in some ways, me and Gerard Butler have similar bodies. <laughs> in that you are both human men. Fuck you. Let me have it. It's a non-visual medium. Let them think that I have abs. Man, I, at the Yankee game today, like, when I saw Brett Gardner next to Aaron Judge in the outfield, I'm like, they're both the same thing, but they're not the same thing. Mm. Like, 6-7 versus, like, 5-7. Anyway, you're Gerard Butler. Yeah. In terms of, like, the reception or the... What if I kicked you in the chest right now? <laughs> if you did somehow from under the table, I would be very impressed. I wouldn't <laughs> like I wouldn't encourage it. Please don't. All right, sorry. Do you think... So, okay. So... I don't know if this is an interesting angle to go down. I'm just wondering why this isn't more popular. Because I feel like she's a very known writer. Yeah. Likely due to the, the fact that she killed herself, mm-hmm. which is going to be my question. The, I think the book is also famous. Is this uh, – how much did she have published? A lot? She had poems. Is this her only novel? I, did, I, I looked on the inside flap and there was something – there was there was another thing called – it was prose called like Johnny and the Panic okay. or something like that. Johnny and the Panic something. Uh, and and I'd never heard of that before. But this is like, this is her thing. This is the novel. But right. I mean, she's more famous as a poet than she is as a novel. So do you think, so my question is, do you think, I don't know if there's a, a, a way that you could actually answer this. If she hadn't killed herself, if she was either still alive, like she either faded into obscurity or just like wrote other things, like would this book be more or less popular? Like, would it be more taught in school? Like, is the added, not necessarily stigma, but connotation or relation that she... <clears throat> died well okay so so i think that's actually a really complicated question i think and i don't know if there's an answer Um, maybe there is i i mean i think this book in particular would be less popular but i think her body of work overall i think it's silly to say that she wouldn't have eclipsed this book because she's a 30 year old right and this is she to write a great novel by the time that you're 30 is 
fucking insane. How old was J.D. Salinger when he wrote Catch on the Rye? Probably young, right? I mean, he had he had uh, come back from World War II oh. already and okay. written a bunch of short stories. I mean, that doesn't mean that you're not thirty. He could he could have been thirty, but like, you know, he he had done a bunch of stuff. J.D. Salinger, thirty-two. Thirty-two. Okay, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Um, because he's also writing about like childhood and and childishness. The reason why, and this is shitty. The reason why I think Catcher in the Rye gets taught and the bell jar doesn't get taught in high school is because young people, especially women, have been acclimated to accept male narratives and young boys have not been acclimated to accept female narratives. Yeah. And so if you taught a book like The Bell Jar, which is a very feminine narrative in high school, I think a lot of the dudes wouldn't read it. Which I think is partly why I enjoyed it, because it feels like a thing that we should have read. Like this, yeah, for not, sure. not even just like I mean, this one specifically, but also like just stories like this, right? I mean, I think yeah, I think I think this book is canon. I think it, it's it's something that should be. I also think that it's it's a high school book. I think it's a book that should be taught in high school specifically. A lot. Ha- I'm not saying that not, not a lot happens, but there's not a lot of actual action. Like a lot there's of there's very in, little plot in her head. Right. Yeah. It's a lot of yeah, her yeah. thinking in like sort of being depressive or being wanting or whatever. But, like, the big action, kind of, is she loses her virginity and then hemorrhages and has to go to the hospital to get it taken care of. Mm -hmm. And, like, I can see that freaking high school boys the fuck out. Yeah. Thinking that, like, oh, is that going to happen to a woman if I... Yeah. Even though Irwin is just like, hey, baby, it's normal. Uh, yeah, and then and then she sends him the bill later and is like, "Fuck all!" Like she, like that's that's funny too. There, but I so another one of the very funny. Like I wrote down a lot of like quotes that were I thought were very funny. But like what I loved about that is that she's like, "I hung up on him." She's like, "They're gonna send you the bill." He's gonna write. He's like, "I'm writing a check," and she's like, "He's a mathematician. He doesn't like loose ends." I'm like, "She's like, he'll pay it. He's a mathematician." It's just like that doesn't mean anything. But I love that that's her. Just like, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, has a great, a lot of great dialogue. Yeah, in here, she's it's very like. Uh, uh, quick-witted and and there's a lot of like good vapid dialogue like like a jay mcinerney story or like a, a Brady snell story i began to think vodka was my drink at last it didn't taste like anything but it went straight down into my stomach like a sword swallower sword and made me feel powerful and godlike it's like fuck yeah <laughs> there's yeah there's another in, in the very beginning of the book there's a part where she's like i am just looking for a drink that does not taste disgusting <laughs> So there's Doreen, who's like her roommate, right, or her uh-huh. like her friend. She had an interesting, slightly sweaty smell that reminded me of those scalloped leaves of sweet fur, and you break off and crush between your fingers for the musk of them. It's just like a very that's fucking awesome, specifically yeah, that's such good writing. Yeah, that is so good. What I also like, it's the it's. I mean, I, again, I just love this. Again, I I, I don't say like I don't have things to say, but like it's one of those things. Where it's like I just I don't I can't really articulate. Well, let's let's talk about Joan. Joan is. A friend? How does she meet she's, Joan? She's not really a friend. So there's a guy, a buddy. Mm-hmm. He, dated, he dates Joan after he dates Esther. Uh, is it? I think so. Okay. I think. Because he says at the end, he's got the very sad line, which is also a little bit, a little bit funny. Do you think there's something in me that drives women crazy? It's like, yeah, dude. Yeah. Yeah. You suck. <laughs> I mean, it's you and everyone else, but yeah. Right. Yeah, Joan, it's interesting because Joan and Esther have this connection. Like, Buddy is, is part of their connection. Esther really dislikes Joan. She's super mean to her. She refers to her as being horsey all the time. There are multiple times when she's just outright cruel to her, like is like, oh, it's because nobody likes you, Joan. And and there's this in- implication a little bit that Joan is kind of faking her depression. Well, it sounds like, and I think they might even explicitly say it, that Joan hears that Esther tried to kill herself and she's like, oh, yeah, I want to do that, too. 
Yeah. And then just, like, shows up the same mental asylum and then actually kills herself. But is, like, like in the course of while being at the mental asylum is, like, the model mental patient. Yeah. Right? She, like... Uh, uh, goes through the the uh, the different houses, ascending to the top house very quickly, where she then gets to, like, go out in the town, and then she gets to not live at the mental hospital anymore. She starts living with a fellow nurse. Which almost makes her suicide sh- more shocking, right? It for sure does, yeah. Because I think, I think as readers, we're sort of brought down the path to believe that, like, Esther's the depressed one. Yeah. Joan is faking because Joan wants to be Esther in some way. And then does Joan want to be Esther so much that she succeeds where Esther fails? Or is is Joan just like another casualty of a world that is like incredibly hard on women? Yeah. Um, and, and that's got to be part of it because some of the some of the problems that she has have to do with Buddy and with the ways in which she's been been rejected by Buddy. But it's funny because she's even she's like, yeah, I don't really like Buddy, but like I really like his parents. Especially his mom. Yeah, his mom's, like, super cool. Like, will Buddy's mom be coming to visit? She's, like, real happy about that. Yeah. What I also appreciate about this book is that Esther is too smart for the world in good ways. Mm -hmm. Like, she gets out of science. Like, there's, like... like, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's really funny. She's, like, so good at physics. She gets an A that she's, like, when when she starts taking chemistry and she doesn't think she's going to do well, she's just, like... Um, I'm clearly going to get an A. I got an A in the last class. So like, you mind if I just hang out here and like, don't take the class, but like I'm in the class and he's like, yeah, absolutely. And she's like doodling. He's like, oh my God, she's taking notes because she just wants to be here so bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really funny. Yeah. Like that's like, I, again, I just feel like she's a, I mean, a, you know, still probably true today, but a woman ahead of her time where I think it's more acceptable for someone like this to exist today, but still society would probably be like, shut up and take what you get. Yeah, if you can, if if you if you're a person that can get a scholarship to an Ivy League school, then it might be okay for you to become a poet. Otherwise, not really. Right. Should we talk about the sex? Because like, there's a, there's a line where so it seems like she has no interest in men, or yeah, right. little in, like less interest in men than other people around her, mm-hmm. and she keeps getting set up with like a boyfriend's brother or friend. They're always like ugly or weird, and she doesn't like them. And then she sees Buddy, or Buddy, for whatever reason, is infatuated with her. Mm-hmm. And she sees, like, his distance, and, like, they basically break up, but she's like, oh, yeah, he's at another school. Uh, I can just pretend I'm with him, and, like, the pressure's off. So there's that whole manipulation, again, of the societal norm and expectation or whatever. Well, there's also, there's also like, a weird in, inverse thing where Buddy is, like, faking like he's innocent and that she is worldly and, like, kind of, like, sexualized and stuff like that. When in reality, like, Buddy has expe- has sexual experience and Esther is, is, has no experience at all. But he's, like, making her feel like she makes him feel like he's inexperienced. And she resents that from right. him, right? Because he's, like, sort of playing up a social dynamic that is, that it, uh, uh, is, is like, a vision of her that uh, socially is, is, is negative. Yeah, like the Madonna and the horror yeah. to a certain extent, yeah. right? But then at one point they're hanging out and he's like, we should probably have sex or whatever. And he, he gets naked. And she says, the only thing I could think of was turkey neck and turkey gizzards, and I felt very depressed. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, okay, your turn. She's like, I don't know, maybe some other time. He's like, okay. And then that's it. But I'm, it, I'm glad she doesn't have sex with Buddy. I mean, Irwin's a piece of shit, too, but, like. But Irwin's a piece of shit in a way that, like, is disposable. Like, Buddy, it seems like, is yeah. shit on the bottom of your shoe or whatever that phrase is that just won't go away. Like, he'll always be around. But, like, Irwin, she can, like, get yeah, out of here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But then there's, like, the whole. Were like, you imagining Irwin was the crocodile hunter? Isn't that the guy's name? Steve Irwin? Yeah. Maybe. I was like, oh, she's having sex with the crocodile hunter now. 
Well, what I like, I mean, it, again, there's a lot of names in here. Like there's guy Constantine, but he also says, I collected men with interesting names. I already knew a Socrates. He was tall and ugly and intellectual and the son of some big Greek movie producer. In addition to Socrates, I knew a white Russian named Attila. It's just like just weird dude names. So, I mean, well, the, also, also those are um, like not not like weird dude names. They're like dudes that are symbolic of like the great men of history. Right? Attila the Hun and Constantine, so yeah. Socrates, Attila, Buddy. <laughs> Steve, uh, but, but, but Buddy is is lesser than all of those, right? And like, Steve Steve Irwin and Steve Irwin, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the crocodile hunter. Probably, um, if I had to, like, if I were making a list of men that I would be intimate with, uh, Steve Irwin, Steve Irwin, beginning and end of the list, yeah, beginning and end, <laughs> it's just Steve Irwin, the alpha and the omega, yeah, crocodile hunter, hunt this crocodile, baby. That, that's my that's my uh, butt taint and balls that's theme the song. <laughs> there, you can cut that out if you want. No, no, that's no. That's staying, that's one hundred percent staying in. There's also a couple things that, like, again, to the dated nature of it, that I had to like look up or be like, wait, that's weird. Like, there's the part where she talks about being being photographed naked. Oh, for, for the school. posture picture. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, Which I know that they did like they did scoliosis tests when, uh-huh. when we were in elementary school or whatever. But like, that just seems so invasive. Yeah, that no, that's something that um. Uh, was a thing not that long ago. Uh, people were trying to get um, purged or something like that, which was that up until the movie The Purge. No, no, up up until the seventies or something like that. At like Ivy League schools, they had naked photos of every single student. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's really fucking nuts. That's so crazy. So uh, yeah, like like maybe like ten years ago or something, people were like, "We want to get rid of those photos. You have naked photos of us when we were. We don't want those around." Yeah, it's weird. That's so crazy. Mm-hmm. But then there's also later she gets the fitting, which I had to Google to confirm, but it's for a diaphragm. Because it just seems like, I guess, casual maybe enough people would understand in the 60s, but it just like, it felt sort of foreign. Well, she's also, she's she's somewhat embarrassed because she's there and she's not pregnant and everyone right. else is pregnant. So she, again, she feels like she's doing something wrong. But she's just taking ownership of her body. Yeah, right. But in, in, in the 60s. Uh, 50s um, in some places now that's in, in some ways a revolutionary act right sure which is also creepy when she goes to the doctor when she is hemorrhaging and the doctor's like hitting on her kind of like oh, he's, he's like oh yeah I can fix this you're one in a million and like basically winks her like oh yeah I got you baby you're one oh yeah I can I can don't sweat it I can fix I've been around a hemorrhaging woman before I've seen a vagina or yeah. two they call me the crocodile hunter <laughs> What did he get killed by a stingray? Yeah. Like went through it. All right. His kids are following in his footsteps. Like they're like TV personalities that are also, it's like Bindi and something. Bindi's the girl. Okay. The one that he dangled above the crocodile. Really? You never saw that? Well, I'm just thinking about Michael Jackson dangling yeah. the blanket. He did it like Michael Jackson style. Like he like had his kid like in an unsafe circumstance with the crocodile. Fuck. And people were like, you could fuck up. You could fuck that up. And he was like, I'm an expert. And they were like, okay. And then he died. On the job. Yeah. So it's like, all right, man, maybe you maybe you could have fucked up. Maybe you're, I don't know. I don't want the Crocodile Hunters kids to, to, to listen to this and then feel feel like I feel like their dad sucked or something like that. I mean, he's the only guy that I would let up in my shit. In your crocodile. Yeah. Email us, MindyLottery at CageClub.net. <laughs> please don't. So I wonder, so there's the other thing where, please do, where Buddy goes to the sanatorium. Like, it's not a mental asylum, but it's for the tuberculosis thing. Yeah. Which is, again, similarly 
societally cast off. Maybe more accepting because it's just a health thing that's not necessarily... Well, because you can't be in society. Like, if you're a depressed person, you have to be socialized somewhat, and you have to, like, you people can visit you and stuff. But if you have TB, like, you have to, you kind of have to be isolated, right? It seems like that whole, like, sanatorium, they're all just, like, banging each other, though, because it's just like, we all have TB, like, let's just get down. Yeah, like how they do at old folks' homes now. Yeah. Where it's just like, none of us can have kids, fuck city. Yeah, man. They visit Buddy there. Esther visits Buddy there, and he's fat, and that's when he chooses to propose to her. And he's just like, <laughs> no, like I didn't want to before, and I definitely don't now. Yeah, which is pretty funny. Um, you have any opinions about the two different doctors that she, the psychiatrists? One of them is is a very good looking man, and one of them is a woman. Well, I like that she likes the woman, but the I, I well, because the woman trusts her, and the woman like like when she's like clearly resents her mother, the the like psychiatrist like smiles at her, and she's like, yes, good. <laughs> Right. I think that, like, but the, I guess to a certain extent, they both essentially prescribe the same thing. Yeah. It's interesting that when the, the man uh, prescribes it, it goes terribly wrong. Right. And, and really, like, totally fucks her up and makes her feel like she's been electrocuted. And then when uh, the woman whose name I forget. Um, Dr. Connor or something? I don't know. Uh, I think the man is Dr. Roland. And yes, that's that right. And then the, is maybe Dr. Gibbons? Maybe. I'm not good at names. Yeah, me neither. Um, so, so, but when the woman does it, she says, it's like being put to sleep, and I promise that I'll be here with you, and, and et cetera, I'll let you know. There's Dr. Nolan. Who's Dr. Nolan? I think that's what I was thinking of as Dr. Roland. Okay. But after, I think it's after the first electroshock therapy, there's maybe the saddest line of the entire book, where she says, I wondered what terrible thing it was that I had done. Like, basically, what did yeah. I do to deserve this, mm-hmm. essentially? It's just like, you didn't do anything. Right. But she is led to believe that she has because like why else would she be shocked yeah the thing the thing that she's done is is that she uh had ambitions and and uh didn't want to you know let people box her in box her in yeah and and it's interesting and later in the book she's like i'm never getting married right it's like yeah fuck yeah but there's something really sad and telling and important i think that only after she is electroshocked does she become suicidal that's a good point yeah because before that she's not like Mm -hmm. she's healthy she's like ambitious and she's you know maybe not what people want her to be but she's a normal girl yeah joking around with friends and then she gets electroshocked and it's just like okay how do i kill myself yeah and that's when the bell jar metaphor comes in Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it just Mm -hmm. sucks yeah pretty rough yeah um there is no uh judge a book by its cover this week because the honorable judge matthew early is attending a wedding and we don't want to bother him sylvia platt's wedding weirdly enough yeah I have a, so, okay, so when she actually, like, the closest she comes to actually successfully killing herself, she takes a bunch of pills, and she goes down, like, in their basement. Oh, yeah, that's right. And yeah, she, like, falls that. into a hole or something, or she's, like, there's some kind of, like, No, she, she, doesn't, she, doesn't, she doesn't fall into a hole. She, like, att- intentionally climbs into uh, what is essentially, yeah, like, a crawl space, and then, and then like, brid, like, boxes herself in behind, behind, uh... I think, like, puts a bunch of logs in front, right. of, in front of the hole. So when she comes to, eventually, in the hospital, she's, like, deformed. And I'm wondering how that happens. Like, she has, like, no hair anymore, and her face is all bruised and, like, swollen over. Um, Is that just from, like... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Like, there's a lot of interesting uh, language in that part. Like, like she, her eyes are closed, and they have to, like, chip at her eyes away with the, with the chisel so that she can, like, daylight starts breaking through. 
Um, that's a, that's a really fascinating thing. It seems like that part is it seems like the most like a horror movie and also the most like a slapstick comedy mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah, where she's like, "Oh my god, I'm blind," and the doctor's like, "No, you're not." Yeah, and then another doctor's like, "Yeah, you're blind." <laughs> she's like, with that other guy, yeah, there's something like very Wes Anderson-y about it. Another sort of Wes Anderson thing that, like, I thought was going to become, like, the third act of the book and then almost immediately gets dropped is that there's that, like, eccentric author, Philomena Guinea, mm-hmm. who's just like, I'm fascinated by your story, and then, like, doesn't, doesn't factor into anything. Yeah, she she's almost like a, a deus ex machina to, like, get her to go to the fancy therapy place where she then gets treated by the, the good doctor. Uh, by the good doctor, yeah. But I was just like, oh, I thought like I thought it was gonna be like she was gonna like spend time and like she's gonna tell her life story or something. But it's just like no, it's just you know, kick yeah. her up state or whatever. Yeah, Philomena Guinea, what a name, truly. But then the end, the end of the book, she walks into her exit interview to get out of the insane asylum, mm-hmm. and they basically downplay it like it doesn't really matter. Like you, they already decided if you're gonna get out or not. But I was thinking, and this is very dumb. I don't know if I said this to you. Maybe I just dreamt, dreamt that I told it to you. But you know how, like, Ocean's Eleven, like, he starts getting out of prison? I'm like, this is, like, a prequel to Ocean's Eleven, and she is Danny Ocean. Yeah. How much do you guys make? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? The, what? You said yes, and then you were like, wait, what? Yeah, I thought this was a – you were – we talked about the Ocean's Eleven prequel thing earlier at the baseball game. About – in regards to this? I don't think so. No, 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 no it was a different thing. Yeah, it was a, it was a joke, but I, like, what – Tie it back together. So that's that's a separate thing altogether. I was just thinking that o- Danny Ocean starts the movie in prison, and he has the exit interview. Like, that's how he gets out. And this one ends the exit interview. Yeah. But not prison. It's just – but it's, again, like, you're, she's trapped somewhere. She doesn't want to be. Right, yeah. So this I'm, just, is the... I'm just saying she goes on to lead a cape, a series of capers in, in Las Vegas with – it's it's interesting because it's, it's it's the beginning of her life, right? We know essentially because in the beginning she says I was all right. We know that she's okay from this point forward, generically. When in reality, Sylvia Plath, of course, did kill herself. Right. She killed herself the same year this came out. Did this come out before she died? I don't know. Let me take a look. I don't know. Who are the Rosenbergs? Are they someone? Yeah, the Rosenbergs were. Um, they were accused of being communist spies. Oh, right. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Yes, 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 yes. And and they were executed um, because they were, uh, quote unquote, spies. And some people still think they were spies. Some people think that they weren't. But that's always stood as like a, a monument of the death penalty in America because they were killed without having killed anybody, right? Normally, the death penalty is, is reserved for people who murder. Yeah. They were accused of, I think, selling secrets to the Soviets, which I don't know if it was ever proven or like... People say that it was proven, but the documents that prove it are classified, which is always something to question. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, so Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were, were killed. Gotcha. So this book came out in January and she killed herself in February. I think that stuff happens sometimes. Yeah. Because you look to artistic achievements to solve the problems of your life. And then when they don't, things right. feel worse. And she was married to Ted Hughes, who was, you know, uh, a mammoth, a, a very, very popular and powerful English poet. He, I think, was abusive to her, and he has had control of her estate, and he determined, uh, like, the, the letters of Sylvia Plath were published, okay. and he is the one who determined which letters were included, so there's this idea that he was editing to make himself look good, Sure. and uh, I think he maybe even edited her, her posthumous poetry collections to come out, so he's, he's like, 
you know, one of the villains of of poetry. He's a very good poet, but also like uh, like one of the you know villains of modern American literature. That sucks. Yeah, sure does. There's a whole section on on Wiki for the book about parallels between her life her life in this novel and. Philomena Guinea is based on a woman who basically funded her scholarship to study at Smith College, and there's a bunch, you know, Dr. Nolan's based on her therapist, and this and that and whatever, and then Ted Hughes said this might have been written as a response to the many years of electroshock therapy and the scars it left. Sure. Yeah, There, there's other interesting, like, there's an interesting part in the book where that one uh, girl is like, oh, yeah, I've had a lobotomy. And yeah. she's just like, say what? Yeah. Because she's got the scars, and it's like, yeah, no, I'm okay now, but I had a lobotomy. And it's just like, Jesus. Okay. Right. This is the world that we live in, where people get, you know, their. Brain, and she seems like no, covered. like it was a good thing. Like I'm, I'm better now. It's like, ooh, yeah. You sure about that? Do you want to talk about the movie now, or like the the possibility of the movie? So there's a there's an adaptation, I think '79, mm-hmm. that's only available on VHS. That I tracked down a copy of that we're going to cover next week on the Patreon. There was also an attempt uh, at making it by Kirsten Dunst. Right. It seemingly fell apart five or six years ago, like 2015, 2016. I don't know how long she had been trying to do it, but... Yeah, the one from 79 is not well-received. So, um, and and because this is like a classic of American literature, it feels weird that there hasn't been another adaptation. Um, I think it's a good time for it. Yeah. People love period pieces, like 1950s period pieces, right? And there's also probably never been a better time for a story about a woman like this to be received. Yeah, probably. I know that you said that this season is going to be more diverse in the types of books, but I think that, like, just setting a thing, like, in the way that I'm seeing it, like, setting in and around school feels like they should all lend themselves, to some extent, fairly easily to adaptation. Maybe, yeah. I don't but, know if that's actually the case or not, but um, it feels like if, if it's around yeah. just, like, young people, you know, it's, it's going to be somewhat probably grounded, I'm generalizing here, but, like, grounded in reality or whatever – like there's like you could make this movie with like no special effect. It's just like it's just a woman. Oh yeah, this could be a very very unbelievably low budget movie. Yeah, uh, you could make it for fifty thousand dollars. What I've heard people describe as porno money. Uh yeah, porno money. Um, if you well, well, it would cost more than that if you if you were to make it a period piece. But the reality is that you probably wouldn't actually even have to make it a period piece. You could just, I no, you you should. It should be a period piece because yeah. because like that would help a lot. Um, and then you wouldn't have to explain away different things. Uh, and the medical community at the time is probably is an, an integral part of the story. I wonder, I'm sure that like people have made like written, like you know how like everything is like, oh, that's like, you know, Clueless is Emma or whatever, right? Like I'm sure that there are probably things that like are this just modernized at like, oh yeah, that's a good, jar, right? yeah, or yeah, just, yeah. You could, uh, uh, yeah, I'm sure. Or there's stuff with it. It's just like very much hyper influenced. But yeah. Because I mean, I think there is like a direct link from this to things like Treasure Island or Story of My Life or whatever, where it's just, even if it's not thematically, it's like spiritually. Yeah, the same di- kind di- of dis- like- disaffected youth, uh, uh, ennui brought upon by like urban uh, isolation. Are there examples of that before this? Uh, Probably, right? Uh, Catcher in the Rye is, is one. It came out in like 1950-ish, right? Yeah. Yeah. Some, yeah. Uh, so, and, and like, yeah, there are, there are uh, stories of, of isolation. Okay. There's like some William Styron stories and things like that. Okay. Even Norman Mailer stuff uh, is sort of like that. Not with uh, female protagonists, but. Sure. I, I, I think that this is probably a better novel than those those are, though, off the top of my head, those books that I've mentioned. Oh, I, you know, I meant to talk more about the parallels between Beljar and Catcher in the Rye. Go for it. Just linguistically, the, the language that they use to, to uh, 
Um, they're both first person, um, both like first person novels in the city where people's main main conflict is is alienation. Um, and in Catcher, it's an inability to trust people. And I think that that sort of uh, crosses over a little bit. Um, but like the difference is uh, like I think there is a big gender gap in that people are more ready to receive this book because it's like the problems that she has are understandable now. Whereas like the problems that Holden Caulfield has for a lot of times were like now it's just like like fucking sad white boy. Like who cares? Right. Which I think also goes to what we were saying earlier, like that there might be never have been a worse time to adapt like Catcher in the Rye than now. Yeah, I love Catcher in the Rye. I, I, I think that that's a great book. I don't, I don't I don't mean to dismiss it at all. I do think that this that that Bell Jar is a better book than Catcher in the Rye. But I just think like in terms of like where we are in terms of the stories that we want to see, mm-hmm. I think that there is a, a, a more of a hunger or a desire or whatever for this kind of story than a Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Even though. Catcher in the Rye, it probably has better name recognition. Oh, right? for sure. And it's still taught in, in I, I mean, I read Catcher in the Rye in eighth grade and then again in uh, when I was a sophomore in high school. Yeah, I think I read it as a sophomore in high school too, I think. Yeah. So it's like something that gets taught over and over again. Again, because in the high school curriculums, I think the, the priorities of, of boys are, are, sorry, the the desires of boys are prioritized. prioritized. Sure. Bummer. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. I didn't even, I, that's not something I even noticed in high school, but like, yeah. Well, I think it's hard to notice when you're in the thing, kind of. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure the women in my class noticed. I'm, oh, sure, sure. I'm sure they were just like fucking like. Well, that's the thing. It's like I don't think it, um, unless you have the wherewithal, you don't realize that everything you're experiencing, the people look like you because like we've been conditioned that like sure stories are about straight white dudes or whatever, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. To a woman or to a person of color or whatever, just like or you know a non-binary person, anything, right? It's just like where is my story? Yeah. Your friend Egg wrote in. We have an email address. Our oh. friend. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod, just like Amber Tamblin. Amber Tamblin and Egg. And <laughs> two friends of the pod. And Lucy Alma knows about us, to some extent. That's true. Yeah, she retweeted, right? Or publishing she liked, company she liked retweeted. Tweet, uh, publishing company retweeted. We're getting out there. Yeah. Meg's reaction to the bell jar. We have an email address if you want to email in lottery at cageclub.me. Like we said in the last episode, just email in and we'll get to it when we get to it. If you yeah, want to, actually, to be honest, it doesn't even have to be about the book, like these books in specific. Like I, we'll talk about books in general. Like yeah. if you if you have just uh, like if if there's something about books that you want, like if you have a book that you want to recommend, if you, you know anything, any or or like if there's a campus novel that you're thinking about that we didn't include, um, write in to talk about that. Maybe I've read it. Maybe Joey's read it. Maybe we can, you know doesn't matter you don't have to just talk about these books or if you're like the only person you know who reads books and you're like this is finally a people who actually read books and you just want to talk about books you can do that too for sure yeah lottery at cageclub.me or if you'd like me to list the various crocodile hunters that i would that i fantasize about um is it still just the one uh, just the one yeah steve Irwin. yeah if there are any other crocodile hunters out there get at me baby that's not a knife <laughs> this is the second time i've read this book and it's still one of my favorites says egg the way that Plath depicts Esther's journey is so reasonable, I can understand why Esther does the thing she does. It never feels like Esther is a spectacle. Plath writes about, quote, madness in a logical way, which makes the novel that much more powerful. I think that's a great point about, about Esther never being a spectacle. The most powerful scene to me is when Esther is huddled under the covers after learning she's going to get more shock therapy. I think at one point she's like three times a week. She's like, holy shit. It's a lot. Yeah, when she's huddled under the covers, though, I think, well, read on. And Dr. Nolan is talking her into doing it. Aside from Esther herself, Dr. Nolan is my favorite character. There are a lot of mother figures in the book, but Dr. Nolan is the only one capable of actually taking care of Esther. 
Yeah. So one of the reasons why she's huddled up under those covers, though, is because she believes that Dr. Nolan has has. Um, oh, so I was wrong. Dr. Nolan is, is the woman. Is, is the, yeah. OK. Sorry. Yeah, Bob. Just like the joke says, the doctor <laughs> was a woman or yeah. the riddle, not the joke. The, yeah. The riddle. Um, uh, The reason why she's huddled up under those covers is because she believes that Dr. Nolan's betrayed her because Dr. Nolan said she was going to let her know in advance. But then Dr. Nolan didn't let her know in advance because she knew that she wouldn't sleep. Right. And so she let her know then. So she was like doing like a very motherly thing of like, I'm looking out for you and it's not what you want, but it's what you need. Yeah. My one thing, and I don't want to call this a criticism, but I don't know what else to call it, is with this book that I couldn't remember who Joan was when she got reintroduced later in the story. I had the same thing. I'm just like, I know that I know the name, but I don't know who Joan. Yeah, because like, Joan, like part of Joan's thing is that she's not remarkable. Right. So oh, this time and the first time I read it, I had to flip back to remind myself who she was because I got her confused with her friend Jody. Yeah, okay, yeah, for sure. But I also think, like, eventually, like, you know, because it's not like Joan's in there for, like, 50 pages. It's, like, it's, like, 10 or 15 or 20 pages, and then all of a sudden it's, like, she's framed within the context of Buddy. You're like, oh, right, like, I kind of can place her then. She also, she becomes a central character. I mean, yeah. she is, she's maybe the most important character outside of Esther. The ending is so deeply sad to me. At face value, it's, quote, open-ended, so you can decide that Esther gets out and is all better. I mean, she at least thinks she's better, right? Like... If you go by the opening line yeah. of the book. Or the third page or whatever, yeah. yeah. But this is definitely a book that's an exception to the, quote, narrator is not the author. Plath pretty clearly states that they're the same person when Esther says, my heroine would be myself only in disguise. Should be called Elaine. For Elaine, sure, yeah, yeah. Elaine Bennis? Seinfeld. Does, did, did. No, no, that's me saying it. Well, she'll appreciate that reference. I know, that's why I was saying it. Okay. <laughs> I counted the letters on my fingers. There were six letters in Esther, too. Sylvia also has six letters, so you can't really separate this particular fiction from reality, and the reality is that there isn't a happy I don't know ending. if that numerology closes the case on it, but, <laughs> but, I mean, I agree. I agree with you, but I don't think that the six-letter thing is, is the, like, the, quite the Columbo uh, master reveal. One more thing, <laughs> lottery pod. <laughs> Sylvia. Uh, yeah, just, just 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 one more thing. Uh, if you're if if you if you're not if you're not Sylvia, then then why why does Elaine have six letters in it? I got boxes full of Pepe. Okay, love this book. Read the book. Love the book. Read the book. Was that is that the end of her email? No, that that was that was me saying love the book. Read the okay. book. Egg I, ended it with uh, Elaine. Yeah, I'm glad th- this was at, this was uh, her recommendation, right? We 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 included I included the bell jar because shout out egg when we had the meeting, and we and we came to the conclusion that we were going to to do this. Uh, I included uh, the bell jar because it was Meg's suggestion, and we included the art of fielding because it was Desiree's suggestion, and Enzo because it was mine, and Enzo because of yours, yeah. And the other, um, the other twelve were all you, kind of, yeah. But that's fine. And Montez was like, "I'll just read whatever." Yeah, well, she wanted fantasy books. <laughs> like, I, I, I found it hard to, I mean, like Harry Potter or something like that could fit in, but I'm not, I don't. Oh, yeah, we, we didn't say that books two through eight in this season are actually just the Harry Potter books. <laughs> yeah, we're not reading the first one. Oh, oh, never mind, sorry. I was thinking you were saying. Two. Well, I guess there are, there is the eighth book, which is like after the fact or something. So, yeah, we're just not doing this. We're not doing the first book. Yeah. We're doing the Philosopher's Stone. We have an email address, lottery at cageclub.me, patreon.com slash lotterypod, at lotterypod on Twitter. We talked, we talked about this in the uh, intro thing to this season, but if you get the audible thing through our site, get Giles Goat Boy. Giles Goat Boy? That would guy Giles, I think. Giles. Jay Giles Band, Goat Boy. And uh, probably the instructions by Adam Levin. Levin. Um, I, for some reason, I don't think that that's on Audible. Uh, it might not be. I, I, could, I could be wrong. Oh, you said Secret History was your other recommendation. Secret History, yeah. which is a big, um, a very big book. 
today's crime is uh, torrenting movies illegally and then watching them to support your podcast. Don't do it. Don't keep reading. <laughs>